0: If you would take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 3, we come to the end of our year and we come to the end of Paul's argument, one that he began back in Romans chapter 1 verse 18. Read along with me, if you will, beginning in Romans chapter 3 verse 9. What then are we Jews any better off? For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Father, as we come to the close of another year, we remember your faithfulness. That you are always trustworthy as you are always eternal. And even as years pass us by, you do not change. And today we... Ask for understanding as we come to your word for nourishment, for strength, for understanding. And Holy Spirit, help us to grasp by your words the true condition of the human race, but also what this means for each of us. Lord, give us ears to hear. Amen. There is little doubt that We as human beings like to think of ourselves as essentially good, and we work hard to convince ourselves that this is true. Evil people are the exceptions to the human race. That's why people are always mystified when when people perpetrate great crimes, great acts of cruelty. If you watch the news when interviewed, people will say, I just, I don't understand how anyone could do that. Or maybe it's a it's a neighbor, someone who knew the person who went, went off and shot somebody or some committed some other tragic crime. I thought I knew that person. They're shocked that anyone could do this this kind of thing. And so deep down. We know that things are wrong with the human race. We know things are wrong. And we acknowledge it on a macro scale when we witness genocide, oppression, war, mass shootings, corruption and greed... And we also know these evils in our more immediate daily lives as we encounter dishonesty and spite, racism, alcoholism, abuse, anger, betrayal. We see those daily at some level or another. And we know these things personally because if we were to really expose ourselves and our own hearts and our own thoughts very often, we know our own anger, our own lusts and greed, our depression, our fears, our anxieties, our self-centeredness, things we don't like to admit or even talk about. But we know these things are wrong. We know there is something broken about ourselves and broken About others. And so, despite all of our talk of healthy self images and environmental factors and blaming our parents or our genetic makeups, we feel guilty. And what's more, is we are guilty. We are guilty. Guilt is not just imagined, it is a true state. We may distract ourselves with hobbies, screens. We may drown it in alcohol. We may soothe it with pornography. We may wallow in it in self-pity. We may blame others for that guilt. We may hide it on Facebook. But our actual guilt and our felt guilt remain. If the gospel is the power of God for salvation... To everyone who believes, because it reveals the righteousness of God, as Paul declares in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, then the question that must be answered is, why do we need saving? Salvation from what? Romans 1.18 through chapter 3, verse 20 is the answer to that question. God's wrath is being revealed against humanity's suppression of the truth, humanity's turning from God, our rebellion and our pursuit of evil, even if it is under the banner of good. And there are no privileged exemptions Even for the people who have the law, God's law, that special body of revelation that God gave to the nation of Israel, even those who have that special instruction from God have no exemptions. According to chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, this is no grounds to question God's righteousness, His faithfulness, His keeping of his promises, his justice, his integrity. In Romans 3, verses 9 through 20, Paul issues God's final verdict regarding our guilt. And it really is not how we feel. And we can talk about feeling guilty. And I know that I am speaking to some who struggle with guilt and regret. But Ultimately, what Paul is talking about here is our actual status of guilt, not what we feel and think, but what matters most, and that is God's assessment of our standing before him. We have an actual status of guilt as God assesses our lives and our standing before him. And the question is really whether we will believe him. Whether or not we will agree with his verdict. These verses then usher us into the courtroom, into God's courtroom, where the human race stands before God in arraignment. And here Paul declares the charge against us, the evidence against us, and the case against us. First, verse 9: we see the charge against us. And Paul begins here with this question. What then? What then? This is a way of saying, what's the conclusion? So what are are we left with? And the conclusion has to be this. Are we Jews any better off? Now remember, this was the real challenge in understanding the need for salvation. When Paul portrayed the human race as a whole, it's easy to see man's rejection of God, his suppression of the truth, his pursuit of idols, false gods, his exaltation of himself, trading in God's glory for the glory of the things that God has created. It's easy to see how humanity as a whole needs to be saved. Sure, the human race as a whole has rejected God, suppresses the truth, is under God's wrath. But what about the Jewish people? What about Abraham's descendants? They have the law. They have the special relationship with God. And doesn't this mean that they have an exemption from judgment? Answer, Paul says, no, not at all. Yes, as he has said, they they have some privileges as guardians of God's special revelation to humanity, but this only increases the guilt for failure to keep that law. And so the charge is against all of us. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. To be charged, verse 9, is to be accused This is the accusation made against every member of the human race. We are all and every one of us under sin. Under sin. Let's talk about what this means for a second. To be under sin means to be under its deception, its power. To be under its dominion or its rule. And under then the condemnation that it brings. To be under sin is to be enslaved to sin's tyranny, which includes being bound to the guilt that it produces. Not just the guilt that we feel, but the guilty status that we have before God as a result of sin. This does not mean, to be under sin, does not mean that we are innocent victims but that we are guilty participants in its kingdom. Every person of every race, every ethnicity, every culture, every class, every gender of every time is an an absolute universal bondage to sin. Which means, not only do we think sinful thoughts, Not only do we harbor sinful attitudes, feed sinful desires, all which are contrary to God and His character and His commandments, not only do we commit sinful acts, but the condition of our hearts is sinful. Even when we are doing good, That doesn't change the condition of our hearts. But to be under sin means even more than that. It means that we are chained slaves, so captive to the dominion of sin that we think we are free and even insist that we are free. And so this is the charge we are under sin. You are chained to it, you love it, that's the charge. And we are guilty. And here is the proof. Now, Paul offers this as a kind of a final presentation of evidence against us. This is the evidence against us. As though a prosecuting attorney were to summarize his case against the defendant... Paul offers this last litany of evidence that stands against us as it is written. And So this litany of evidence, if you will, is taken from a string of Old Testament texts that include Psalm 14, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Isaiah 59, and Psalm 36. And Paul just takes phrases and lines from each of these different passages and he just strings them together. And he weaves them to show how our own lives testify against us. How our own lives testify to our unrighteousness, our guilt before God. First, our our, uh, independence from God condemns us. Our independence from God condemns us. Verse 9 says that all are charged to be under sin. And Paul now reemphasizes this, that there is no exception. He says it over and over again in verses 10, 11, and 12, doesn't he? Look there. None is righteous, not one, no one, no one, all, no one, not even one. It's as though we are saying, wait, there has to be one righteous person. What about the most selfless, sacrificial, humanitarian of our age? No, not one. (laughs) No, not one. Aren't there wise gurus in tune with the spiritual world? Those with deep insights into human nature. Champions for good. No, no one understands because we claim we can create our own truth apart from God. Aren't there many people sincerely seeking truth? Sincerely seeking what's right, objectively and openly seeking God? No, no one seeks God. There is no such thing as a seeker. Now, I'm okay with that term, depending on what we mean by it. If we say that people are seekers, there are such things as seekers. If they're seeking, it is because God has already begun a work enabling them to seek. But humanity as a whole, people, human beings, are not seekers of God. No one seeks for God, not without His intervention first. Because if we're really honest... We want to be gods to ourselves. We want to be our own masters. So no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Why? Because we think we know a better way. We have suppressed the truth. We have refused the one path. Together, we have become worthless. This is the sum total of our oneness as the human race. Do you remember Genesis chapters 10 and 11, where the nations are accounted for, and then all of the peoples of the earth come together to do what? To build one tower, one great central city in which mankind will exalt itself against God and prove that it can be one and its own master. And what does God do? He destroys it by uh, separating every people, groups into their own languages, by dividing humanity. And what do we see in our own world? As technology increases, as globalization takes place, once again, there is always this talk. We are one, one humanity, one race of beings. Well, we are in one sense. But God says that together they have become worthless, empty, vain. That's what all of our oneness amounts to. Nothing. No one does good. This is the final, ultimate assessment. Remember that the knowledge of God is found in every human heart. We know this from Romans chapter 2. But this does not mean that ultimately anybody accomplishes good. No one does good. Not even one. So just in case you wanted to protest, God says, no, not even you. Not even you. So our independence from God condemns us. We also see that our speech condemns us. Our speech condemns us verse 13 to paint this picture Paul draws on verses using four different organs of speech you can see them here the throat the tongue the lips the mouth these are all needed to speak and according to what God's assessment of the human race is they are all destructive and deadly they're all destructive and deadly The throat throat is an open grave. The picture here is that the throat is an open grave that is consuming the living. It consumes life. Deceit hides destructive plots. The venom of asps, poisonous serpents, is hidden and deadly. Curses and bitterness, this is, uh, these are terms for verbal abuse. Everything from insults to uh, slander, false testimony, all of these things. As James puts it in James chapter 3 verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. What we say is powerful. You know that not only because you and I have all said things that have wounded others, hurt people, deceived people, but because we have been hurt by them as well. We have suffered from others' words. And so we are condemned by our speech, what we say, how we communicate. All of this brings us to a guilty standing before God. We are also condemned by our violence. Our violence condemns us. God sees and assesses the human race as one that is ready to take life that is precious to God. Remember, all the way back to creation, God created Adam and Eve. He breathed life into them, created them in his own image. And what was the first sin outside of the garden that's recorded? Murder. Cain murders his brother Abel. So from the very beginning, the human race is swift to shed blood, ready to take life. Whether this is in mass, in war, whether this is murder, whether it is the aborting of an Unborn child, whether it is the euthanizing of the old and the disabled, those who cannot contribute to our society as we determine it, these are all shedding blood. And we are swift to shed blood. And our way of life, our paths, are dominated by ruin and misery. Filled with conflict. This is the what he means here by the way of peace is unknown. We don't know peace. The human race is portrayed then through speech and through violence as this writhing, seething mass of humanity that destroys itself. Again, we see this both in the world news and we see it at our own dinner tables. Fourthly, our our worldview condemns us. So our independence from God condemns us without exception. Our speech condemns us our violence condemns us, and our worldview condemns us. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, the fear of God or the fear of the Lord is an important theme in the Old Testament, especially in those books in the Bible that we call the wisdom literature. We usually define the fear of God as something like honor or reverence for God. And, That is true. We could even say that when it talks about the fear of the Lord or the fear of God, it's really talking about a right kind of terror that we should feel before a holy God. But when we read a verse like Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the Bible is talking about a way of seeing all of life a God-centered worldview. The fear of the Lord is living life, business deals, relationships, investments and vacation plans, what you read and what you eat. It's seeing everything according To the truths that God is on his throne, that he sees all, that he knows all, and that he judges all perfectly, rewarding right and punishing wrong. That is a worldview. This is why the fear of the Lord, listen, is the beginning point of knowledge, not the conclusion of knowledge as if you can work your way to that conclusion, it is the beginning point. God has revealed himself, and therefore the beginning point for truly knowing anything, understanding anybody, how life really is to work, and how eternity comes to bear on us as a human race, that begins with fearing God. That's a worldview. So when Paul says there is no fear of God before their eyes, he is saying that every person is guilty of living his life or her life without any regard for God's rightful place at the center that we have no regard, for God and why we must answer to him. The human race trades its goods, marries, studies nature, designs medications, builds empires, plays games, and sips its coffee with no regard for the God who created it. And holds us to account. Such folly is incontrovertible evidence of our guilt before God. That's what Paul's saying. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Even those who say, yeah, I believe there's a God, live as atheists. Live as though there is no eternity. How frequently do we come across the worldview that says, you've only got today. Live for the moment. It's a delusion. It's a delusion. Deep down inside, we know there is something wrong. And our worldview condemns us. We stand before God guilty. So this is the evidence against us then as we stand in this courtroom before God. Lastly, Paul states the case against us. This would be something like a closing argument. Verses 19 and 20. The case against us is settled finally by the law. By the law. Paul is already talked a lot about the law. And depending on the context, he could be talking about the Mosaic Law. That would be the Ten Commandments and all of the various codes and rules and statutes that come out of those Ten Commandments. He could be talking about the five books of Moses, and we've noted a couple of times that that's what he's probably referring to. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this this whole law, the, the, whole, uh, the five books of Moses or the Pentateuch. It could be that Paul at points is, when he says the law, he's talking about the whole Old Testament. Sometimes the law is used to summarize everything from Genesis to Malachi. The law here is the Mosaic law. It is this Ten Commandments and all of these statutes and regulations that come out of those commandments. It's the Mosaic Law representing God's standards for right and wrong. How to approach Him. How to worship Him. How to please Him. So those who are under the law then, verse 19. Those who are under the law are whom? These are... The Jews, the nation of Israel, they are the ones who have received the law. But look, the whole human race is under sin. The nation of Israel is under the law. They are those who are entrusted with the oracles of God, Paul said a few verses before this. And what the law says, it speaks to them, which means... That right and wrong is very specifically spelled out for this people who have received the law. Which highlights their failure to keep that law. However, and this is Paul's point, the purpose of the law is to silence everybody the fact that God has given the law to one race of people in the world actually testifies against everyone in the world. Every mouth is stopped. The whole world is held accountable to God. We are all, every one of us, a defendant with nothing to say and with no appeal to make. That's what Paul's saying. Because the law speaks to anyone at all, the whole world has to answer to God. So God, by giving the law, by delivering it, revealing himself specifically to one group of people, has made the entire world accountable to himself. And so the result is this. First of all, no one can say, well, we didn't get the law. We weren't given those specifics, so that's, that's God's fault. Paul's already dealt with that in verses 1 through 8. The other result is that those who have the law can't say, well, we get an exemption because we have this special law. We have this special uh, relationship formed because we were given the truth. We were given the light. No one gets to make an excuse on one side of that argument or the other. Everybody is found guilty. And each of us has to be. Each of us has to be accountable to God. There's no alternative because, verse 20, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, So, the law holds us accountable, but it cannot justify. Now... When we talk about this auditorium, I'm going to give you a little insight into some of our pastoral conversations. We refer to this as section one, section two, section three, section four, and section five. So if you're sitting back over here, you can know you're sitting in section five. Now we do that because sometimes we go, well, Uh, Who was that person or, you know, the the chairs weren't set up correctly or the sound is is really too loud in section 4 or whatever it is. So that helps us map this room. So I want to divide you up real quickly into these five groups. And I want to say that, let's say that you are all stranded in darkness and that doom is coming on this auditorium. That's pretty obvious from the condition of the projector. That doom is coming. And the only way of escape is if if I provide escape for you, and you can uh, can fly out of this room. And I choose a group of you. I'm going to pick section two, because you're right here in the middle, right down front. Pretty stoked, huh? Yep, you should be. Just like Israel, you should be stoked. And I'm going to give you instructions, And I'm going to tell you, this is what it requires for you to get out of destruction. And so out of all of this dark room, chaos, you have the light. And you alone have the light. Now, you guys in section one over here, you can see that they have the light. You can see the light beaming down. You can't see what it illuminates, but you can see they have the light. Section 3, you can see it, 4 and 5. You can all see they have the light. There's something different about this group of people. And because they have the light, along come some blessings. Food and water delivered to them. Supplies. And so they pull out the instructions and they go, Yes, we've got the instructions. We know how to get out of here. You guys don't. Hey, section three, you guys don't know how to get out of here. Let us teach. We can teach you. We can show you. We have the light. And as you start to look around with the instructions, you realize you have some materials, but you don't have the tools. And so you fumble your way through the instructions. You do your best to try to meet the demands of the instructions, but you can't do it. But hey, judgment is coming. And your appeal is finally what when judgment comes? But wait, you gave us the instruction manual. But have you built anything? Have you built the plane to fly you out of here? No, and you know what? The instruction manual didn't actually provide for you section two. It didn't actually give you the tools to build it. And even if it had given you the tools and you had the instructions, you don't have the actual capacity to ever build the plane to get out of here. That's what Paul's saying. This is the difference. And everybody else looks to the light. Everyone else is supposed to look. And you're supposed to invite everybody in and say, hey, we've got the instructions. This is how we get out of here. This is how we escape judgment. But everybody else looks and says, section two, they've got the light. But they can't really get us out. And some of you, maybe you join section two. You do whatever you have to do to become a section 2 A proselyte, if you will. But you're still under judgment. Because even though you've got the instructions, even though the light has beamed down on your section, you're still trapped here. The law, the instruction manual, cannot justify. The law cannot bring us into a right standing with God. The law, though it reveals God's righteousness, cannot provide the righteousness that we need. No, through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin. Which means, in other words, that the law, by making God's righteous demands known, by revealing them, actually exposes our utter inability to meet those demands. That's what the law does. It's good, and it's right. And Paul will make that point later on in Romans. The law is not bad. Is the instruction manual bad? No. But it's completely unable to help you meet the demands. That is the knowledge of sin. That's the knowledge of sin. The law shines the light on our hearts, on our motives, on our condition, and gives us a knowledge of sin. There you go. Congratulations. Congratulations. But it's supposed to make us go. We can never build this plane. We can never get out of judgment. So what Paul began to show then in chapter 1, verse 18, he now concludes in chapter 3, verse 20. The entire human race is under sin. The entire human race deserves God's wrath. The entire human race, every single one of us, stands charged as guilty before God. The real question for every one of us is, what plea will you enter? What plea will you enter? If, in response to the charges against you, you plead not guilty, if you insist on your innocence, if you blame others' failures, or maybe even blame God himself, If you plead not guilty and you pull out all of the credentials that you have, that you produce evidence that you're convinced should exempt you from God's judgment, or if you plead not guilty. Because you have concluded that God cannot judge you because you don't even believe he exists in the first place. If you plead not guilty, then there is only one sentence. And that is wrath. It's wrath. Wrath that God has said is already being revealed. That is already coming. There is only one plea to enter. Guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. The only hope any of us has is to agree with the charges against us and to throw ourselves on the mercy of the court. That's the only plea to enter. Lord, I am guilty as charged. Is there any provision for those who are broken by their guilt? Yes. Yes, there is. And I know that I'm speaking to people who are all in different places. Some people are very convinced of their own goodness and their own moral fiber and position. Others know guilt and know the weight of guilt and and then fold in on themselves And their guilt becomes the focus of their lives. Neither is a right response to guilt. Whether it's felt and recognized or not. Because this is a status. Regardless of how we feel. We stand guilty before God. And the answer to that is not to ignore it. The answer to that guilt is not to try to explain it or offload it or wallow in it. Is there provision for those who are broken by their guilt? Yes, there is. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Father, we know in the end that is our only hope. And Lord, I have prayed for anyone who would hear that they would be convicted, that they would come to know the mercy of the court, that they would come to turn to you for justification, to be made right, to be brought into a right standing with you, and Lord, I pray that again this morning. That if anyone would hear this and see their own guilt, their own status before you, that they would enter a plea of guiltiest charged and throw themselves on your mercy. This is what the gospel is. It is the revealing of of our great brokenness and our great need because of our rebellion and the hope that you have provided, the forgiveness that you have provided, the justification that you have provided that is found only in believing on your Son. He has provided the righteousness that we need. Lord, I pray that as... We continue to look at Romans that you would open our hearts to understand that. That we, your children, would be strengthened and nourished by these truths. And that those who have not yet come to know you in truth, Lord, would would come to believe you. But Lord, let us not wait. We stand on the brink of a new year. Lord, what what a time, what a perfect time To find new life, a new start through repentance, through confession that we are guilty, that we are in need of grace and mercy. I pray, Spirit, that you would work in the hearts of people, not because we have deserved it, but because you are patient with us. In your name we ask these things with all of our hearts, amen.